Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, professional crime analyst and acclaimed author Spencer Cope joins me in the interrogation room. As a real-life crime fighter, Spencer works as a crime analyst for the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office in Washington State and has been in that role since 2004. He's especially adept at identifying possible suspects and even developed a data-driven analytical process that identifies vehicles from surveillance images. Spencer has written and released two novels, 2016's Collecting the Dead and last year's Whispers of the Dead. He's previously served in the U.S. Navy, where he learned Russian and worked in cryptology, and he's also worked in several capacities for the Office of Naval Intelligence. Thanks, Spencer, for joining Writers on the Beat today. We're glad to have you. You bet. Thanks for having me. So I'm reading Whispers of the Dead right now, and it's a fantastic introduction to your writing. And I, I think, personally, you, you've created one of the most unique protagonists I've read in, in a long time. Um, for, for readers unfamiliar with your work, what do you want them to know about, especially the second novel and its, its main character, Magnus Craig? Well, um, when I first started thinking about writing about crime, uh, I, I'd written Young Adult and a bunch of other uh, genres prior to that. Uh, you know, I, I looked at the whole field and I knew I didn't want to do like a detective, prosecutor, you know, some of the usual stuff that's been done. And then I had the idea, well, I, I don't remember any novels about a tracking unit. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, the problem with tracking units is when you call out a tracker, it's usually going to be a canine. Yes. And if I relied on, um, you know, the way we go out and track and, you know, hunt down a suspect, I mean, the story would be pretty short because yes. you go out there, <laughs> you, you hunt him down, you catch him, you know, and, and then there's no follow up. You, you have no other parts in the case or anything. So I started racking my brain on that and how I wanted to proceed. And I decided that I'd come up with this character, Magnus who was a man tracker, but he has this special ability. It's almost paranormal uh -huh. um, where he can walk into a crime scene and see, it's almost like an aura. It's a synesthesia where um, he looks around, he can see everything that the suspect and the victim touched where they walked. And so he can, he can tell what happened, but he still, he can't identify the suspect from the, this trace evidence left behind. And so it's his story. And because he's got the special ability, the FBI, he has an in with the FBI, and they build this special tracking unit around that ability. So he's got a, an FBI, FBI special um, agent partner, Jimmy, and then an analyst that stays back in the hangar, and they just fly around the country in their Gulf Stream uh, whenever a body's found or there's some unusual circumstance that they need to you know, kind of sort out. And they've, they've gotten to the point where they're specializing a lot in serial killers. Uh -huh. um, and so it gets, it gets kind of dark for, for steps at times, just trying to deal with all that. And the, actually the, uh, the title collecting the dead came from a habit of his where he would take a picture of everybody. He felt like he failed every, every victim. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, these victims are people that were dead before they even got the call. So there's nothing he could have done for them. Um, he also keeps another book for the ones that they save, but there's not as many pictures in that one. So, um, so that's, that's kind of the setup for the whole team and, and steps, um, special ability. Yeah. And I really love the, the nickname that he gets steps like, you know, and the, like the, everything about this guy is 
really attractive to me as, as a protagonist, right? He's got this, this unique special power that is totally believable. It's not truly like supernatural, but still like the way that you introduced that and the way that you caused that to take uh, him to have this, I guess, affliction uh, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. Um, I, That's I think, the way he views it. <laughs> yeah, it's all really brilliantly done. I, I, I think you did a really fantastic job in, in creating the story and making it um, really unique and really believable. You know, that, that's the hard part. Um, and, and I, you know, as a new crime writer, I didn't know this, but now, uh, looking back, I mean, the, the crime fiction, the crowd, the people that like those books, mm-hmm. trying to introduce that paranormal element, um, you know, that, that's iffy because a lot of people, they just want the whodunit. They want to, you know, the, your standard, you know, um, serial killer novel or, you know, a, a crime, uh, that they can follow. And, so trying to keep it believable, um, that was a big, big push for me from the beginning. But I think by weaving in a lot of the the real procedures and I mean, the things that I do mm-hmm. on a day to day basis and trying to keep that part of it as real as possible kind of helps, you know, with that transition and, and making it believable. Yeah, I, I really felt, too, that the, uh, you know, even the 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 the, the head injury that, that causes this to come about in his life um, I, even for me, um, with you know my my background in 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 science and biology, even that was totally believable. The way that you set all that up, right? I mean, we know so little about how the human brain actually works and and what the capabilities and limitations of it are, and you know things like auras right. are awfully a lot of people who you know have those types of experiences, and I I really um, I, I'm really enthralled with it. I'm I'm excited about this book. Well, and especially uh, when you look at like synesthesia, where people, for example, when they hear sounds, they'll they'll see colors, or yes. you know, where the senses are just mixed up. I mean, that's a that's a real uh, condition. Yes. So uh, this is really not that much of a step um, mm-hmm. from that. You know, I, I think the only the only thing that would separate it from real synesthesia is the fact that that whatever this aura is, it lingers, it stays yes. around. Uh, until whatever it landed on is, you know, eroded or, you know, blows away. So, uh, but so it's, it's pretty close to the, to a real condition anyway. So I think that helps make it more believable. Now, from a, from a craft perspective, you've, you've written this, um, I haven't had a chance to, to look at collecting the dead yet, but in reading whispers of the dead, um, you've written this latest one in, in, in first person. I imagine the, the collecting that probably is first person also, but, I've always struggled with kind of the pros and cons of the intimacy of writing in first person um, versus, you know, writing in third person and all the additional info that you get to lay out when, you know, your protagonist doesn't have to have eyes on. Uh, What what kind of made you decide to tell your stories from inside the heads of your characters? Well, I, you know, normally when I write, I'm writing that uh, third person because I think that's normal for people when they're reading. Uh, it probably originates the back when we we're, you know, around the campfire telling stories, you know, it's always third person. But I, I played around a little with the idea of, of trying to get a little further into Steps' head. And I think that's kind of what, what took me there mm-hmm. and with collecting the dead at least. And because uh, I wanted to, I wanted people to see the struggle that he was going through with each of these cases and with the victims. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was the best way of doing that. The problem with it is, I mean, I, it's nearly impossible to write a traditional like a whodunit because you're you're always right there in his head. So you don't get 
a lot of the benefit of cutting over here to see what's going on with this guy and then over yeah. here and you know all these little things you can do with a traditional book and I actually after I finished uh, collecting the dead I, I really thought about switching for the second book and then the third and the fourth which are done now too um, switching over to the third person just because it was so difficult staying in that first person um, point of view and I, I decided to stay with the first person throughout the whole thing uh, because I, you know, in the end, I said, okay, I, I started this way. I'm gonna stay this way. Um, I think part of the reason people like steps is because they're able to get into his head in that little internal dialogue of his. So um, as painful as it is, I, I stuck with that. But I, I don't know that there are going to be too many other books I try to write outside this series that are first person, just because uh, what a challenge it is, you know. Yeah, and especially to to have written it as as well and as fluidly as as you have is I mean, that's just got to take an inordinate amount of time and, and effort. I'm I'm too lazy for that, <laughs> so I, I can. <laughs> well, I, I think I am too, but somehow I managed it. So <laughs> now, oh. in uh, in your real life experiences, um, in uh, you know read, uh, readers, listeners of of this show, um know that I, I've never specifically worked as a homicide detective. I, I've worked on homicides. Um, I've been first on scene for some. I've been attached to some, but I've never had like, it's never been my case. I've never had the responsibility of being that case agent. And to me, um, the burden of working homicides as, as a detective, but also in your role in working on those cases as an analyst, right? Um, so many people are relying so heavily on your expertise, your data, your word, um, the burden uh, of that must be tremendous when you guys are working a victim crime. Yeah, I, I, I guess it, for me at least, it's a um, it's a mixed bag because, I, I, and it's horrible to say this, but in, in one sense, it's invigorating when you get a big case like that because, I mean, this is this is the thing that's going to test all your skills. You know, this is this is a real challenge. And you want to go out there and you want to, uh, you're looking for all the missing pieces, you know. And I, I'm not the guy that's out there. I'm not with them at the scene. I don't carry a gun or a badge or anything like that. I, I mostly ride the desk, but um, it's my job to kind of piece everything together. And, uh, and, and I guess that's part of my internal makeup. I'm, I'm, I've always been an analyst. You know, I, before this, I was an Intel analyst for, for O&I and, um, so I've always had that mindset and, and it's like, you know, you want to solve the puzzle. And so mm -hmm. there's that drive, but along the way, I think that, um, like I, I've gotten to the point and I think I, I'm even included this in one of the books I talk about, you know, you get to the point where you see so many autopsy photos that you're sitting there eating your lunch. Yes. You got these photos up on your screen and it doesn't even phase you, you yeah. know? Yep. So, and that's kind of where I am. I mean, I, it, it just doesn't, doesn't really affect me anymore. So I yeah. don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but. Well, I think it's definitely a necessary thing and a coping mechanism for, for all of us, right? You know, when you're, when you're in this, in this job, whether you're, you know, a, a homicide investigator or an analyst or, you know, a mortician, right? Your, your trauma meter has to be so far pegged above what, the rest of society deals with for you to uh, just be able to function in your day-to-day -day life and deal with what we have to see. Um, right. Yeah. You know, I, I think if, 
you couldn't look at autopsy photos without losing your lunch. Uh, you know, obviously you can't do the job, uh, but you're also, you know, from an emotional perspective, you're not going to be an effective and an objective investigator. Right. Well, and I think that's where, you know, you, you always hear about cops and their dark humor. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I try to weave a little bit of that into the books to, to mm -hmm. lighten it up from time to time. And, uh, um, but, you know, in truth, a lot of times uh, the, cop humor is going to be a lot darker than what actually makes it into print. I mean, it's just yes. that coping mechanism that you, mm -hmm. you, know, you just, the banter in the office, that type of thing, you know, yeah. you know to it's, deal with it. It's funny as I, one of the, the first, um, the first couple of books I wrote, I was tempted to, to put more of that in. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what dissuaded me from it, we had been to a, um, an office party um, with, with my wife's coworkers. And I started telling the story that, you know, was tangentially related to whatever the discussion was. I started telling the story that I thought was really funny. And everyone else looked at me like I was a serial killer. <laughs> you know, we, we have that, we have that discussion all the time because my, uh, my coworker was telling me recently about how she was talking with her family about something or she laughed about something and everybody else is, you know, just horrified. And uh, we kind of joke that, you know, we're really not suited for any other jobs at this point, no. just because you, yeah. you get kind of ruined uh, to all of that. But yeah, then again, I mean, you're seeing it every day, you're dealing with it every mm -hmm. day and it just, that's how you deal with it. Yeah. I, I really don't think it's possible in, in any role, you know, in any kind of first responder, any kind of, you know, victim crime investigation, um, crime analyst, homicide detective, ER nurse, you know, um, you, uh, you can't walk through society's gutters and right. stay pristine. Um, yeah. it, it really yeah. does something to, to your soul, unfortunately. And, you know, um, at least we all have each other to lean on in our private conversations when we can gauge our audience better than I did that day at the office party. So, right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and I guess we're fortunate here. We're not like Chicago or some of these other places. I mean, Whatcom County, we just don't get a lot of homicides. So a lot of what we're dealing with, I mean, we still get your stabbings and, and yeah. shootings and, but mostly it's, um, you know, property crimes and the usual, you know. Yeah. Now it's on, on that kind of a related note, one of the major themes of, of this podcast is, is authentic writing. Um, can you talk about your day-to-day -day work life and, and where a lot of screenwriters and novelists get the crime analyst position wrong? <laughs> well, first of all, one thing that always bothered me about television was the enhance button. You know, you get all these shows out there where, and you know what I'm talking about. You yeah. see these grainy photos and it's always some grainy photo from a gas station or something like that. And on TV, they, they pull it up and then they push a button and instantly pixels that didn't exist materialize and you can zoom in and get a clear shot of the person's face and the license plate and the brand of cigarettes he's smoking and, mm -hmm. you know, all of this stuff. And, and the, the reality is, I mean, good grief, you go through and I'll, I'll pull up uh, a surveillance image and I'll convert it to like 1200 DPI and, and play around with it and try to to get a clearer image of whether it's a plate or a face or something like that. And uh, I, I mean, you're limited because I mean, the pixels that are there are the pixels that are there. Mm -hmm. Now there's some software that can do like interlacing and stuff like that, but um, really it's, there's, there's no magic button. So that's one of my biggest pet peeves. And um, one of the actual 
databases that I created that I included in the story was uh, something I call forensic vehicle analysis. And it was created uh, because of this problem with pixels. Because I got tired of seeing all these photos of cars uh, that were involved in crimes and you couldn't read the plate, you couldn't figure out what kind of car it was. Yep. And so I put a database together and, and basically it goes through and, and I've got over 50 different um, points of um, recognition on vehicles. You know, things like, okay, what side is the, the gas cap on? Because if they pull into the gas station uh, with a stolen credit card and use it, they're going to pull up on the side where the you know the pump is facing, yep. and so right away, if you see that, you can eliminate half your suspect vehicles just by saying, okay, the gas gas caps on the left hand side. Um, things like, okay, is the brake light in the the high position, the low position on the back window? Is it on the trunk? You know, the con the location of license plate in the rears, high center. You know, I have all these uh, different markers, and I can go through. I've had cases where I've been able to. Um, identify a car down to the point where it only gives me like 20 different options. And, wow. uh, and so, I mean, the, the number of cases, I mean, I use it all the time. The number of cases we've been able to close up that way by at least narrowing down the, uh, the year range of a car. Um, it's, um, it's pretty good. I, I mean, I would like yeah. to see the database at some point become more widespread, but uh, you know, we'll see what comes up down the road. And one of the things, too, is, as you were talking there, that uh, never gets brought up in a lot of these shows or in, in fiction, right, is the consequence of that mystery enhance button, right? No yeah. one ever has to go testify and face defense counsel's cross-examination about yeah. their expertise in the use of the enhance button and what that does. <laughs> You know, but, yeah. uh, you know, so, you know, when you're you know blowing that up or changing it to 1,200 DPI, like, you have to be able to explain your expertise and the justification and your knowledge of that on the stand at some point. And yep. if you can't do that, then you just wasted your time because that's not relevant. Right. You know, <laughs> if it can't be admitted to court, it doesn't count. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we just, you know, unfortunately, I mean, it's interesting watching these different cases. We decide, I talked to you earlier about a, the cold case that we just mm -hmm. got a conviction on. Yeah, congratulations. And I honestly, yeah, that, that was, that was a great win after 30 years. So, um, but I mean, it's amazing how much is not allowed into court. Yes. And uh, I mean, you get to the point where you wonder how, how do we ever get any convictions at this rate? You know? Yep. Um, so yeah, you really do have to have everything buttoned up before something goes to trial. Cause I mean, the stuff that you think is just solid as a rock, you know, is going to get challenged and, um, so, yeah, and that includes, you know, surveillance images and, and all the other things we do to get from point A to point B. And that's one of the things that, that's been surprising to me, especially with the person's crimes investigations, is how common it is to have a, a judge exclude photos taken of a vicious crime scene because the photos are too uh, damaging to the defense. They are too... <laughs> you know, psychologically yeah. uh, biasing for the jury to yeah. see what this scene looked like. Um, and that just, that, that makes no sense to me. Um, yeah. And unfortunately we're, there's more and more of that. It seems like where mm -hmm. it's like, you're scratching your head and say, you know, how, how can they exclude that? 
Yes. I mean, they, I can understand if things were, you know, a fruit of the poisonous tree and all that, something that was collected inappropriately, yes. uh, something we yep. should have had a warrant on. I mean, those are all legitimate. Yep. But, I mean, it's getting to the point with, with uh, defense and all that that, uh, I mean, some of the most insane things are being um, excluded from the yep. trial. And I, I don't know how we continue on like that. And then, I mean, not get, you know, law enforcement completely frustrated with it. And then, you know, they, they get to the point where they say, well, okay, I'll just do my job. And, you know, and then the whole community suffers because the guys that should be in prison are not, you know, yep. not walking the streets, but, you know, yeah. And, and we're told all the time how we're a prison nation and, and, uh, you know, we're, we're locking up too many people anyway, but, you know, I, I tell you, I, I, I see all the bookings every day who's in, mm-hmm. what they're in for. And I, I look at these guys and I say, okay, I, I would love to present a list to somebody who makes that argument and say, which one of these guys do you want released and moved into a, a house next to yours? You yep. tell us and, you know, we can move forward. Uh, because in most cases, they're going to take a, take a look at the charges and say, uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah, especially on the on the state court side where where you and I have experience, right? I, I I think you know probably on the federal side there may be maybe a little bit of difference there, but on the on the state side, I see way too many guys that are getting probation for violent crimes. Um, oh yeah, you know yeah. especially with you know you and I both having worked under the Ninth Circuit, um, you yeah, know, <laughs> out all the time that that yeah should be, uh, should be really. Uh, um, almost a silver platter case. Yeah, I've, uh, I tell you, there've been some really frustrating sentences and decisions that, I mean, you have to suck it up and keep going mm-hmm. obviously, yeah. but, uh, yeah. we had a, um, without going into too many details, we had a, uh, crip member that moved our County and we contacted him about a month after he moved in. And, uh, one of our guys contacted him on traffic stop and he told him straight up that he was a crip. Um, that he did time down in California and that if he had his gun with him, he wouldn't have stopped. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that I, <laughs> I get the, the email on that one, start researching this guy. He did 12 years for, uh, for attempted murder and had just been um, found not guilty on a, it was a double homicide where he claimed self-defense that a gun mm-hmm. was just laying there when bullets started flying, he grabbed the gun and defended himself Wow. Um, which apparently they didn't look at the fact that he always had a gun because he'd been arrested, you know, for felon in possession over and over and over. Anyway, so this guy gets to our county and we put the word out to everybody just to, hey, we got a, a new one in town. And and within about a month of that contact, um, he's involved in an armed robbery. And he was already a two striker out of California, but they disallowed one of the strikes in Washington. And then somehow he ended up. I mean, it was a SWAT call out every time we got word mm-hmm. on where he sure. might be hiding. And so we finally got him and uh, he ended up doing like nine months. And then the only saving grace in the whole thing is when he got out, he moved away. Uh, but I mean, that's, you're looking at something that should have been a third strike on a really violent, dangerous guy. Yes. And he gets nine months. So, you know, I, I just the reality of the job, but, um, you know, it is frustrating still. So what's, what do you do for, uh, for research? Who do you seek out for technical advice and counsel when you're writing things that are kind of outside your, your normal lane of travel? Oh boy. I, um, I do a lot of online research. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done, uh, my, um, 
my account has uh, lapsed, but the FBI, I don't know if you've ever used the FBI's virtual academy. I did no. uh, a lot of research on that when I was working on one of the cold cases. And uh, so a lot of that, I mean, it's funny how a lot of the stuff you use day to day, I mean, directly applies. But when I don't know something, like if I'm writing about an area where I have not been, I will go on to Google Earth and go right down to Street View and I'll walk up and down the street basically um, looking at all the buildings, all the, you know, the intersections, the signs, the the sign warning that there's, you know, the area is subject to dust storms and, you know, all that type of stuff. Uh, just to at least get a feel for the area that I'm, I'm going to be writing about. I mean, ideally, I would love to go to every location um, mm -hmm. so that I can more accurately describe it. But I think by doing it that way, the only thing I'm really missing is the smell, you know, I mean, yes. um, and, you know, that you know, I've even actually queried sometimes, you know, what is, you know, like Houston smell like and, you know, gotten different <laughs> answers <laughs> just to, you know, whether yeah. I'm going to include that in their story or not, I guess, depends on whether it smells good or bad. I don't know. But um, so I do a lot of stuff like that when it comes to locations. And then there's a lot of things like I, I'm certainly not an expert in DNA and some of that. So I just I just kind of dig into um, a lot of the. Uh, certainly not Wikipedia. I want to go to the actual, you know, actual um, research that's been done. Right. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I remember um, reading the article. I don't even remember what it was called, but uh, you might be familiar with the case. It was the first case where DNA was actually used not only to solve a crime, but to exonerate somebody they already had in custody. And it was in the UK. They had two murders mm -hmm. that were about a year yes. apart. Yeah, and um, so they arrest the 17-year-old kid and interrogate him, and he confesses. Um, well, around the same time, they're thinking, hey, this new DNA stuff. I think this was around, I don't even remember, like it must have been 85, 86. Might have been a little earlier. Might have been 83. Anyway, um, they ended up collecting DNA from every male in town, a huge amount of DNA, and they still weren't getting any hits. And then they hear about this guy bragging about how one of his buddies paid him 200 bucks or 200 pounds. Uh, to give his DNA in place. Well, it ended up being that guy. Um, so they arrested him for, for the two murders. And at the same time, they exonerated this kid that just confessed that, uh, you know, he was under pressure for, for a long period of time and just finally confessed to it. So I, I read articles like that. And then that makes me curious. And I go read other stuff. And I like to try to, uh, you know, combine as much of that. And when it's, particularly when I find something that's really interesting, I mm -hmm. like to figure out a way of weaving it into the story. And DNA is one of those things that it's, it's pretty fascinating when you start researching um, like the mitochondrial Eve, the idea of tracing mitochondrial DNA back to, you know, a single ancestor and just, you know, all this other stuff. Now for the benefit of the audience, uh, just uh, while you were talking there, I pulled it up on Goodreads. Um, as I re remember that case and that Joseph Wamba wrote a nonfiction about it, the book by Wamba is called The Blooding. Um, but it's the, uh, yeah, that first uh, true story, the first DNA or first case solved by DNA. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating how far that technology has come in a really short period. Yeah, pretty groundbreaking. And well, now we're getting to the point where uh, they're using DNA to actually reconstruct and make composites. Uh, and we had a case recently in Seattle, a cold case they solved, where they, they did that with this company that took the DNA and they made a composite image based on the DNA and somebody identified the guy and it closed out a double homicide from, you know, years and years ago. In fact, the, in that homicide, one of the victim's bodies was 
dumped near our county border and mm. the vehicle that the victims were driving was dumped in, in our town. So um, it's, it's just, it's fascinating to think, okay, where's that going to take us down the road? Yes. Um, you know, on one hand, it could be a little scary too, because then you get the whole big brother thing, you know, yep. um, Gattaca where somebody's, you know, I don't know if you saw that movie where they're, <laughs> yes. yeah, they're, you know, you gotta be careful and, you know, vacuum up all your DNA before you leave your workstation. But, yeah. um, but I mean, as far as crime fighting, I mean, DNA, eh, it's just, it's just amazing where we're headed with that. So I, uh, and touch DNA, we have another cold case we're looking at and, um, uh, I've been talking to the lab and, uh, with touch DNA, uh, at the point it's at where you only need like five to eight skin cells to build a, a good DNA profile. I mean, the possibilities there are pretty amazing. And, uh, again, that's another case where I was doing research on something and I saw that, uh, I read an article where they were talking about touch DNA and uh, the JonBenet Ramsey case and how they were able to get touch DNA off of uh, her pajamas. So um, pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is. Um, with someone with, with your expertise as a technical advisor, we, we've had you know a number of cops on the show where you know obviously the advice usually goes something like show up at the PD, bring donuts and coffee, hang around long enough that we trust you, you know. But with someone with your kind of expertise, um, how would someone form a, a relationship to get a, a crime analyst as a, as a trusted technical advisor? Um, boy, I don't know, because I'm kind of hard to reach anyway. We call our, our office the cave because we rarely leave. <laughs> you know, you, you come to work and you plug in. And, and uh, I mean, it's to the point where we now have these standing desks because mm -hmm. we get so absorbed in it right from the moment we sit down, you know, depending on what's going on that hours will go by and before we even stand up. But um, so trying to get plugged in, um, that might be a little difficult, but I, you know, if it's a writer, I, I have, you know, obviously a soft spot for writers. So uh, I'm going to, whenever I can, I'm going to make time for somebody to answer questions. And I've done that quite a bit with people uh, either through email or uh, even on the phone. And, and I go to, uh, to schools and give little talks and, and interviews with people to, you know, I just did one recently with a, a girl that was doing a, uh, a project um, on on writers and writing. So, um, but, you know, I, you, you get so busy at the job that you trying to do a job shadow or something like that with a crime analyst probably isn't going to happen because I've got, you know, suspect photos hanging all over my office. And, you know, I took my cold case board down, but I've got another board up now with a whole bunch of, uh, you know, burglary and vehicle, vehicle prowl suspects because, you know, it's it's May, so we're we're actually June now, so we're into car prowl season. So um, I like having the images in front of me, so that when I see him on surveillance, you know, it's not, man, eh, he looks familiar, but uh, I don't I don't remember who he is. You know, you get in that mode. But so yeah, I, I don't know. It'd be hard. They'd have to approach me, and um, you know, I'd see what they're looking for and kind of go from there. One of the other themes on, on this show revolves around, I, I guess, my belief, but also, I guess, some advice that I got early on uh, years ago, that it, it takes about a decade of, of blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. Right. <laughs> what, what has been your growth and development like as an author moving your career from inspiration to, to published and acclaimed writer? Well, I w it was about a 30-year journey for me because I first started writing when I was in the Navy. Um, you know, you end up in some of these places where you have a lot of time on your hands. And uh, 
Uh, the first novel I started to write was I was in the Persian Gulf in the mid eighties when the tanker wars were going on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I wrote some short stories and things like that when I was back at the, uh, the barracks and, and kind of grew from there. I didn't write my first, finish my first novel until, um, a few years later after I was out and I was working for the office of naval intelligence. And, uh, it's just one of those things that I, I, I got picked up by a small press in Virginia for one of them, but you know, nothing ever broke out. And then for a while I, I was just writing and mm-hmm. you know, you, you have to, you have to do the research and you have to study yes. other writers and, and all of that. If you're going to improve, I mean, you can improve by just constantly writing, but it helps when you have the other material to tell you where you're messing up. And, uh, and so it was a long process. And I think I went for, I mean, it must've been 10 years where I didn't submit anything. I was just writing, you know, books and stories and things like that. And then, you know, I had the idea for this series and I finished, you know, collecting the dead and sent it off to a couple agents. And uh, my agent, Kimberly, um, she was at um, Thriller Fest in New York. And I got a call from her about probably four months after I sent it off to her. And she had, you know, they're very busy with all their submissions and everything. So she had just gotten to mine. She was only halfway through it and she loved it, wanted to know if I'd been signed yet. And it just kind of, you know, took off from there. And, um, you know, and yeah, so I mean, yeah, instant success. But again, I had that earlier writing. I mean, at this point, I've written a million words at least. Yes. And, um, you know, it's just like anything else. I tell my daughters this all the time that uh, to become a master of anything, I forget where I heard this, uh, but you have to put in 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I've done that, and uh, you know, it just it, it starts to show in your writing. It does. You, know, you get to the point, and it, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you've been there too, where you're looking at something that you wrote, and you're like, you know, damn, that's good. You know, I mean, I mean, you're you're, you're trying to be humble, but you're like, wow, I'm, you know, that really, I really like that. And uh, and I've also on some of my um, some of my other stories. I mean, when you're when you're sitting at your computer working on a story, and and you got tears coming down your cheeks, then you know you're hitting the right emotional chords, you know, and that just comes with doing it. And just, and, and that's what I always tell people when I talk to them when, you know, writers groups and all that, or, or students, I mean, you just got to keep doing it. I mean, perseverance is what does it in the end, because you, if you keep doing it, you can't help but get better. Now, who are your favorite fictional investigators in books, TV, and film? Who, what characters do you like to read or like to watch? Um, boy, I don't know. I should have thought about that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, there's some, um, I'd like, um, Dee Dee Warren, Lisa Gardner's character. Um, oh, I like Reacher. Um, I, I like, uh, the, both the books and the movies. Um, let's see, you know, cause that's the thing I'm, I've always been a, um, I've written other things, literary and young adult, and never really got into the whole crime genre until the last five years or so. Um, but I like uh, Jeffrey Deaver, really good. Um, uh, John Sanford uh, for thrillers. I, of course, you got you know Clancy, and I'm a big Brad Thor, Vince Flynn type on that side of things. Um, the inspirations that that got me started. Um, I, I can almost say exclusively, I think it, well, I can't say that. Um, when I was in the, the Navy, uh, what really got me started writing was uh, Tom, or um, uh, Stephen King. 
because I'm reading some of his uh, collections of short stories, and I'm like, wow, yeah, I really like those. Yeah, I like his twists and turns, and his storytelling is, is just great. Yes. And uh, and then The Stand, I started reading the books and all that. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm 19, 20 years old at that time, and like a typical 19 or 20-year-old, I'm thinking, well, if this guy can do it, I should be able to do it too. <laughs> And, uh, you know, here, yeah, I could, but yeah, here I am 35 years later, you know, uh, finally getting there. Um, so yeah, those are, uh, as far as the crime, um, authors that I like and, uh, and then the earlier inspirations, that's pretty much it. So, or even earlier than that, I should say was, um, I, I'm a big, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings fan. So I'm, I'm a yeah. geek that way too. So I'm, I'm kind of, I, I cover, you know, all the different genres, I think. Well, keep, keeping that in mind, you've got a, a fantastic audience then to draw from from this last one. I, I ask all the authors that come on the show this last question, mostly because it's fun for me. Um, but God forbid it should happen, Spencer. But if you mm-hmm. wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, would you want Steps or another fictional, uh, fictional investigator or some revenge artist, some other investigator working the case? Who gets it? Oh, oh, Steps absolutely gets it, Yeah. <laughs> Just because I, I think he, it's almost a cheat for him. He's got that little bit of an edge. And then when you combine that with the, the, the analysis and the other abilities of the unit, you know, that's a, uh, that, that's a no brainer for me. So. Perfect. So what's, uh, what's next for steps and company? Uh, for book three, uh, that's going to be actually closer to my home. It starts up on the Olympic peninsula with a chase mm. and uh, it's, it's, it's going to get very interesting. Um, there are going to be quite a few victims in this one. Uh, without giving too much away, I should say that there's, let me see, there's only one actual body. So, (laughs) but, and and again, I, there's a, there's a whole story behind that, but, um, this is one where I kind of branched out a little because I wanted to, I wanted to kind of draw the line, especially with all the mental illness we're now seeing in the country, which, Frankly, a lot of it's it's brought on by you know drug use and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly meth. I mean, meth is so destructive. Oh, but so um, yeah. yeah, we're and then you'll see that pop up in my in my books. Uh, references to people walking down the street naked, you know, out of their head. That's from actual cases that we've dealt with. So, yes. um, but in this case, I wanted to draw that distinction between the guy who's a true psychotic who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. And then the sociopath, psychopath, who does know the difference, just doesn't really care. And so I actually have two bad guys in this uh, in this story, and um, and so that that unfolds in a, in an unusual way, which yeah, I won't get into. But pretty much the whole story takes place uh, between the Olympic Peninsula, then down to Bremerton, uh, over to Seattle, Tacoma, Everett, uh, pretty much in that area. And then for book uh, four. Uh, that's going to be down um, in Bakersfield, California. Well, wow. and that's a that's another one that's uh, interesting bad guy and and uh, you know the the typical you know multiple victim. This one's more uh, high profile because it starts with the uh, the disappearance of a U.S. congressman, a controversial congressman, mm. while he and his buddies are off fishing. They just vanish, and then so Steps is called in because that's his uh, you know, his specialty. And uh, it kind of goes from there, and um, in, well, I I'll leave it at that. Perfect. Where can uh, fans connect with you and find out about uh, about your works and these releases? Um, probably best ways on Facebook. 
Uh, so just look up Spencer Cope on Facebook and it'll pop up. And, and whenever I have new information coming out, um, every once in a while, if I'm writing something for a book that's not related to crime series, I'll throw a little little segment of up there for people to read. And uh, then any events I can throw up there as well. So. Fantastic. Well, I greatly appreciate your time and coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us today, Spencer. You bet. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been crime analyst and acclaimed author Spencer Cope. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.